1: As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more.
2: Hey, everyone. This is Molly and Matt, and we're the hosts of Grown Up Stuff, How to Adult, a podcast from Ruby Studio and iHeart Podcasts.
1: It's a show dedicated to helping you figure out the trickiest parts of adulting.
2: Like how to start planning for retirement, creating a healthy skincare routine, understanding when and how much to tip someone, and so much more.
1: Let's learn about all of it and then some. Listen to Grown Up Stuff How to Adult on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Grown Up Stuff. Grown up stuff.
3: The Large Nerdron Collider podcast is a production of iHeartRadio.
4: Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Large Nerdron Collider, the podcast that's all about the geeky things happening in the world around us and how very excited we are about them. I'm Ariel Caston, and with me, as always, is the dulcetly toned Jonathan Strickland.
3: Why? Thank you, Ariel. This question is going out to you. Okay, Ariel, here's your question. What is a celebrity encounter you've had that you think back on fondly?
4: Oh, uh, at the same time, I've had a lot and not many because I used to work backstage at Dragon Con and do some security stuff. Um... Mm. I'll say
3: and all that counts, all that counts. So if you want to, if you want to know, I just don't know if
4: I can talk about it all.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you don't have to go into like, so I had this, uh, you know, this encounter with Bruce Campbell and I carried all of his weed for him. I'm not saying that.
4: Yeah, no. One, I haven't. (laughs) uh, And two, I wouldn't say that. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I will say like any any celebrity encounter I've had where they've just been incredibly nice. And the two that immediately popped to mind when I think of that, and I know you asked me for one, but I, it's, I'm it's i the queen of indecision. And it would be Alice Cooper or Stan Lee.
0: Wow. Because
4: they just, yeah, they both just treated. Now, I mean, this is from a, a brief encounter. You know, I didn't have a lot of one-on-one time with them, but just from my observation, I uh, in that ballroom they treated everyone with just such kindness and respect it didn't matter who you were that it just it really left a positive impression on me
3: i I like it so alice cooper didn't just look at you and say welcome to my nightmare
4: no he was super nice he said hi not every uh celebrity that i got to work with you know necessarily said hi (laughs) because you're in a convention setting you need time to like unwind and things like that but yeah he was he was just very he was very kind to me I can't say that he's kind to everybody, but he was very kind to me. What about you?
3: Oh, okay. So my favorite story to tell, I've I've had several I've been fortunate to have several celebrity encounters and almost all of them have been positive. There have been very few Mm -hmm. where I didn't like the experience, but one that was purely by happenstance was that I was going through the Atlanta airport. This was pre uh, September 11th, 2001. So it was back when. You didn't have to have a ticket in order to go through security. And the reason why I was going was to meet, uh, well, the woman who would become my partner. But we were dating at the time and she was flying into Atlanta. So I was on my way to meet her and I see this guy duck into the Disney store. And I, when I saw him, I thought, I think I recognize this guy. I think that's Ernie Sabella. And Ernie Sabella, for those who don't know, was in Disney terms, he was the voice of Pumbaa. But he also was like mm-hmm. the naked guy on the subway in Seinfeld. And he played lots of different roles on Broadway. And so I was familiar with his work. So thinking that he's Ernie Sabella, but not sure. I also go into the Disney <laughs> store like a stalker and he picks up a Pumba doll and turns to a kid next to him and goes, Hakuna Matata. And without without huh? a, without any hesitation i went what a wonderful phrase and he turns (laughs) around and he's like i thought for a minute that nathan was here (laughs) and we chatted and we actually chatted from there to he was late to his uh to his gate so he had me walk with him and we chatted about broadway he talked about he was in a funny thing happened on the way the forum at the time he said if you're ever in new york let me know i'll get you a ticket just a super nice guy and we just chatted about acting it was fun um and a weird little brief encounter.
4: That that sounds delightful. I never encounter celebrities in the wild. Um, I don't think. And even if I did, I don't know if I would go up and talk to them. But I think, I think I just, I, I probably. We live in Atlanta. I've probably seen some sort of celebrity on the street somewhere and just not realized.
3: Yeah, would, where I don't where, have in the wild stories. Where our office is uh, over on in Pont City Market that tends to be a place where various studios will put celebrities up uh, when they're in town shooting. So like Winona Ryder was staying there, never saw her. Um, there were a whole bunch of different celebrities I heard about, but never, I saw Hugh Jackman in my office, like in the gym that's connected to that building uh, did not say hi to him. He was working out. You just don't do that right to anyone <laughs> in the yeah. gym. Unless they yeah. ask you a question, you you leave them alone. And, um, and the one that I was sad got away was, uh, um, I think it was Mandy Moore. Uh, she was shopping and I was like, it would have been fun to sing with her. Not that she would have. I mean, come on, but you know, me never, never turn up a, a, an opportunity to to sing.
4: Well, don't be sad anymore, Jonathan, because we have some really good news and the really good news is that the Ewok movies and TV show, And part of the Star Wars Holiday Special and Jendi Tartakovsky's Star Wars Clone Wars are all coming to Disney Plus. So the best parts of the Star Wars franchise will soon be available for streaming.
3: You are killing me. Uh, (laughs) Because, I mean, I remember when the Ewok movies came out. The first one was cute. The second one ends. The second one begins with a huge bummer. (laughs) It doesn't get better from there. Um, This is spoiler alert. If you've not seen the Ewok movies, I guess soon you'll get to scratch that itch. The and the fact that you even say Star Wars Holiday Special and use best in the same general (laughs) thought. Also, we have to point out that the part of the Star Wars Holiday Special that is going to be on there is the animated short that was part of the Star Wars Holiday Special. You will not get to see B. Arthur sing or Harvey Korman have a glitch glitching freak out or um, all the other really questionable stuff that happened in that special. If you've never seen the Star Wars holiday special, I don't recommend you seek it out, but it is an experience.
4: It is an experience. And I was I was kind of trolling you. So I genuinely do like the Ewoks movie because I was a small, curly headed blonde girl when I was watching it and it features one. And now you're a redhead. And and now I'm a redhead. Uh, But I also (laughs) do very much like the the Clone Wars cartoon that they're adding. Uh, Sure. I I adore it. Um, And it's the Star Wars Holiday Special is an experience. And I appreciated that experience when I had it. So kind of trolling you, you know, but only a little.
3: Well, it's okay. You're not the only one trolling me. Uh, Funny thing, when we were making up the show notes, I was typing it in as Ariel was writing to me. The thing I typed in our show notes was full trailer for the Irregulars makes Jonathan mad. Ariel sent me a message saying there's a new Irregulars trailer. You are not going to like it. So (laughs) Ariel, Ariel has her finger on the pulse of what Jonathan doesn't like.
4: (laughs) Yes. And I'll, I'll say if this trailer, knowing that you are upset about it because there shouldn't be supernatural stuff. In Sherlock Holmes, this trailer, if it were not Sherlock Holmes, looks really interesting to me.
3: Yeah, if, if it weren't a Sherlock, Now, granted, I get it. This is an alternative take on Sherlock Holmes. And I guess to me, it's just one of those things where I get really persnickety about you can only get so far away from whatever the material is you are referencing before. I feel like there's not enough connective tissue there to make the reference worthwhile So in this case, they're trading on the cultural knowledge of Sherlock Holmes. And of course, the irregulars in the Sherlock Holmes stories are a network of various vagrants and and street urchins who gather information on behalf of Sherlock Holmes. In the series, they appear to be working for John Watson. Holmes himself appears to be a little out of it, let's say. Based on the he
4: doesn't show up much, apparently.
3: No, not not in the trailer, certainly. So, um, yeah, but the supernatural stuff, I mean, that is just antithetical to Sherlock Holmes. In in the Holmes stories, the few times where it appeared there were supernatural elements, it always turned out that these were uh, completely natural things that Holmes figures out, you know, what caused it. So it does irritate me a bit. Even though, like, one of my favorite stories, uh, there was a a book called Anno Dracula that had lots of fictional and historical characters all mixed up together in a vampire story. And Sherlock Holmes was in that. And I was I was okay with that. So maybe I should just get off my high horse and try (laughs) and watch the show and judge it based on its own merits rather than the fact that I'm I'm upset that there are supernatural elements in a Sherlock Holmes related story
4: give it two episodes maybe they'll explain it in a way that you appreciate
3: they're all mutants. and in the
4: meantime <laughs> they're all it's a, really a part of the MCU
3: i mean could be
4: uh <laughs> could be uh, uh well it's not the right sherlock holmes for that uh anyhow uh, if you want to keep with something nostalgically then you should just get in line to play Teenage
3: Mutant Ninja Turtles Shredder's Revenge. Yeah, it's a it's an upcoming video game and it's uh, very much in the style of the old side scrolling beat up Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game. And uh, it, it, I mean, it it's giving me that nostalgic feeling of being in the arcade and just feeding token after token into a mm-hmm. TMNT machine.
4: Yeah, yeah. No, I've definitely lost some some monies doing that. Thankfully, now I have the one-up Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles arcade console. Uh, So I kind of hope that they let me load this into it as a third (laughs) game eventually. uh, Because I got to catch them all.
3: Yeah, yeah. And and I mean, like, this is one of those things that really does harken back to an an older style of video game. I'm sure there'll be plenty of people who will embrace it because they have that same sort of nostalgic itch. I am curious if it will catch on with younger players who maybe haven't had experience with those style of games very much.
4: Possibly. I was going to say the same team did the Scott Pilgrim versus the World, the game game, which was quite a lot of fun. But then I also have to remember that was quite a few years ago now.
3: Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, that was a long time ago. (laughs) Okay, well, we've got a couple of other stories we want to hit in this section, and one of them is that there is a full new trailer for Cruella, the film about Cruella de Vil, the villain from 101 Dalmatians. Um, What did you think of the trailer, Ariel?
4: Uh, Stylistically, I liked it. I... Like just just from a visual standpoint. Mm. I like I like that 70s punk aesthetic. Um, and I love Hoke Couture. I used to want to be a fashion designer uh back in the day. But I've never really felt a great kinship for Cruella Deville. I I uh don't didn't really see the need for her to have her own movie, though watching it, I'll I'll say like Emma Stone. Physically embodies the character perfectly to me. Mm-hmm. Just the the sort of madcap cartoonish version of her, especially when they show her in the trailer driving a car. It's like I'm watching the the cells out of the animated cartoon. Um, you know, I've had friends who are worried that it's going to focus on mental illness in a in a negative way. You know, we've talked before about how at some point we need to have a conversation about ableism. But um, I don't know. I just. I, I'm not feeling a very strong urge to go watch it at this point. I'm sure it'll be well done. I just animal movies like stress me out. And this is adjacent to an animal movie. What about you? Uh,
3: I feel very much the same way you do. I mean, you pretty much hit the points that I did. Like, I think stylistically, it looks incredible. Like from a cinematography, costume design, set design, lighting, all of those like technical elements, it looks phenomenal. The music that they pick for the trailer is fantastic. Like it's it's really striking. But just as you said, I have very little interest in learning anything about Cruella's backstory. The only thing I needed to know is that she was a schoolmate with Anita from 101 Dalmatians. Didn't really need to know anything more than that. Um, Yeah. And she was just a character that I was never really curious about, largely because there's no depth to her in 101 Dalmatians. She really is just You might as well just have the word villain walking around. There's not much else to her, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, yeah, it wasn't really wasn't really something I was looking forward to. If they were to do a a kind of backstory on a villain type of movie, I'd be more interested in one about Ursula and to learn what she was like when she was ruling the seas before Triton was Um, that would be more interesting to me. Kind of you could make that like a Shakespearean tragedy.
4: I agree. And they could, because, you know, Lion King is Hamlet. I will say I do like the Easter egg that Emma Thompson was in the live action 1996 101 Dalmatians and is also in this. Mm. Um, I think that's a fun little detail. Um, and real quick, we have one last news segment before we go to break, and that is In the Heights has dropped two new trailers and announced that uh, they are going to theaters and HBO Max in June. I I could not be more excited about it. What about you, Jonathan?
3: Same. I, uh, so Lin-Manuel Miranda is the man behind in the Heights and it was his big show before Hamilton, right? He was, he was mm-hmm. in that show while working on, on, you know, writing out Hamilton. And, um, I was unfamiliar with it except that I started listening to the I Heart radio, Broadway radio station and, The songs from In the Heights sometimes come on. And I was hooked. It's that same incredible uh, uh, precision of language that you hear in Hamilton. That's also in In the Heights. And there's that passion of a specific love of a specific neighborhood and a, a specific time. And all of that gets wrapped up into the songs that I've heard. And I've been eager to see it, but obviously I haven't had the opportunity to. So I'm hopeful that this film will be a good representation of the story. Uh, musicals, theatrical, theatrical productions in general, their transition to film doesn't always go smoothly. I'm hoping that this is an exception to that general rule.
4: Well, I think it will be. I think because they focused on making it truly a cinematic story and not a videotapes. St- Staged production, like Mm -hmm. they did with Hamilton, Mm -hmm. which I also quite enjoyed. That it'll it'll just work out really well. Everything about it just screams wonderful to me. Um, I I love the little fact that they actually filmed in Washington Heights.
3: Yeah, and Lin Manuel Miranda plays a a minor character in it. In the original production, he was one of the leads, but he is not playing the lead in uh, the film version. He has uh, graciously stepped aside for an actor of an appropriate age to play that part. (laughs)
4: Yes, yes, Anthony Ramos. I also think that Rita Moreno is in it, which I think is also brilliant casting. Yes. Uh, Since she was Maria, the original Maria in West Side Story. Uh, We have a lot more uh, Broadway and musical stuff we want to talk about, but
3: let's take a quick break. Sounds good. Check the backseat.
0: Check the backseat.
2: What exactly are the duties of being a member of the wedding party?
1: All that plus so much more.
2: Let's learn about all of it and then some. Listen to Grown Up Stuff How to Adult on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Grown Up Stuff.
3: so Ariel uh you know last week I think it was last week we talked about the fact that there were some planned pop-up events on Broadway and Mm -hmm. one of the articles that we came across while putting our show together was uh one about the process of reopening Broadway in general it was from USA Today and um that article really pointed out some stuff that just didn't occur to me when we were having that discussion about the pop-ups. And that was like the stuff about how, even if everything were in place right now for them Mm -hmm. to open up tomorrow, they wouldn't be able to do it because no one has been able to rehearse, Uh, you know, like the, there are people who are connected to shows who are not currently living in the city anymore because it was too expensive. And, you know, if you're not making any money, Mm -hmm. You have to conserve what you've got. So a lot of people moved out of the city and it really kind of illustrated that the reopening of Broadway is going to be a much more gradual process and that these pop-up events are likely to be very modest compared to a a quote unquote Broadway production.
4: Yeah, possibly one man shows or cabarets or things like that Uh, stuff, stuff that's easy to get up and mount um, you know, and I'm sure that there are some people who've been working on small stuff. I had a friend who had a show on Off-Broadway who could probably easily take it and put it into a pop-up event, you know. But anything big, yeah, I don't I don't think they'd be able to, unless they've been working on it on the download, they'll be able to yeah. get it up on its feet super quick. Uh, but it does, uh, yeah, I had never thought about the f- fact, despite the fact that you and I have both done theater, and musical theater that, you know, even if you know a musical backward and forward, you know, you still have to practice. You still have to re-choreograph. You have to do the tech. You have to make sure your costumes fit. And the article in USA Today even says, you know, even if you're a dresser or a costume designer or a seamstress or a tech guy, you might have three shows that now you need to get back up on its feet altogether. Mm-hmm. So it's not just on the talent side of things where there's going to be a crunch. But it did make me happy because I know you were concerned about Broadway opening ethically, reopening ethically. Mm-hmm. And it seems like um, all the various divisions that that kind of manage the, the talent of Broadway have that in mind. They want to make sure that it's safe. They want to come back to Broadway in a way that is healthier and better for everybody. Uh, And and that's exciting to
3: me. Yeah, because that article, not just about like healthier in the sense of everyone needs to be vaccinated, whether they are on stage or work behind the scenes or they're part of the house crew or whatever it may be. But as you point out in the interim, while everything's been down, it's it's given people time to have heavy conversations that are way overdue but typically get put aside because everyone's still in the business of actually doing the thing, right? So Mm -hmm. things like inclusivity and accessibility, these issues that have been uh, problems in theater for a very long time and have only gradually been and recently been addressed, a lot of those conversations kind of got kicked into overdrive during lockdown. And that means that the theater that we do see when things reopen is hopefully going to be a more diverse and rich theatrical experience than it would have been otherwise. And I find that really exciting. Um, Something, you know, the idea of being able to see a show that might have a cast that isn't all lily white, uh, which, you know, again, has been has been changing over the years. But like for the Mm -hmm. longest time in Broadway, the vast majority of roles and the vast majority of performers were white. You hardly ever saw people of color up on stage. You often saw white people playing people of color up on stage. So.
4: Yeah. Yeah. You know, I I am. I'm super happy about that. I'm just a a health level and I'm not talking about COVID vaccinations. I'm talking about I've been in productions where an actor has come in sick and thrown up in the wings and then gone back up on stage. And that's like, that's just not great work ethic. (laughs)
2: <laughs>
3: well, on
4: either end of the spectrum
3: yeah, and to have that expectation people won't be doing
4: that anymore. Hopefully. Well, I mean, Ariel. Yeah.
3: Let's be fair. You are someone who's been injured on a show, got seen to medically and returned to the show in the same show.
4: I mean, yes. Uh, and I would do it again. <laughs> But I wasn't sick in a way that could get somebody else sick. Well, no. I had my finger cut open by a sword.
3: It was more about is more about the 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 fact that we have this built in expectation, like this idea that the show must go mm-hmm. on, the show is bigger than any person in it. Like, to some extent, that can be admirable. But if you take it to the extreme, then you're really you're really taking advantage of the people who are making the show. And Mm -hmm. someone's benefiting from that, but it's not necessarily the people who are actually doing the thing. And I mean, yes, it is admirable. Your work ethic is is very strong. The fact that you got hurt, you got some I think you had (laughs) staples put into your finger.
4: Stitches, stitches seven. So
3: you got you got your finger stitched up and then came back that same day to finish out the day like that is that is. It says a lot about your work ethic, but it also says a lot about the fact that we have built in this expectation that the show must go on and that that's expected of you. Um And it shouldn't yeah. be. So, I, I
4: mean, part of it was my vanity. I was super happy to come back. I didn't want to give up. <laughs> on the rest of my day. But yeah, it, it, it is definitely an expectation that's kind of built into theater. You know, and part of it is you just have so many people relying on your little piece that you don't want to let anybody down. So like yes. you said, there's some admirable, there's there's some downfall to it, but hopefully it'll be a, a healthier workplace. And I look forward to getting back and watching some musicals. I have been waiting for my Broadway trip. Ah, yeah, me too. I think I say it every week.
3: Yeah, like if I don't get a chance to see Hades Town, I'm gonna to be sad. I mean, I'll, I'll understand, but it will make me sad because it was something I was really looking forward to. It was a birthday present I gave to myself, and I I'll, I I might never be able to collect it.
4: My my hope is that that was doing so well and so early in its run, still that it comes back. I know there are some that are not yeah, like, Frozen's not reopening. Yeah, and
3: that seems like you hear that Frozen's not reopening, and you're like, that's like a guaranteed sellout. Well, assuming that you're allowed oh. to open up to full capacity.
4: Maybe we'll get Ratatouille the musical off of TikTok <laughs> and onto the stage. So so that that leads me to ask you Jonathan, what do you like in a musical and what don't
3: you like? That that's a great question and it's one that has changed over time. Um so like when I was when I was a teenager, moody teenager, big mood swings, I really liked the stuff that was popular on Broadway at the time, which were bombastic musicals, stuff like Les Miserables, Phantom of the Opera, uh, Miss Saigon, these really big, big spectacle musicals, huge casts, Mm -hmm. big musical numbers, super melodramatic stories. Um, But as I've gotten older, I can't stand those anymore. Like, (laughs) I I recognize the artistry that went into making them. But I find them tiresome and I find them like I I do find them melodramatic, not just like overly melodramatic, you might say. So those I don't care for as much anymore. For me, a good musical is one where the music is very well integrated into the storyline, where the songs are telling us more about the people who are singing them or their situations, their hopes, their dreams, their fears. Uh, or pushing the plot along or both um i'm not as big a fan of musicals that just use songs to to be like a spectacle thing right like like if you think of the old classical musicals the ones that you know really made it to uh, like things like a um uh, anything goes and stuff like that some of those like the songs have nothing to do with the story that's going on Mm -hmm. or the characters who are singing the songs. They're just there as a song and dance number. And there's nothing wrong with that, but that doesn't really appeal to me. Um, I get you. Yeah. I would prefer, I'd prefer a show where the music is part of the storytelling tools that are being used to, uh, to move the audience in some way. What about you?
4: I think I agree with you on the spectacle musical aspect of it. I think those are really great entry points for people who just need to be taken in by the wonder of a story. And then as you develop a more refined musical palette, uh, you look for something deeper. Um, For me, like I know you're not a fan of jukebox musicals, but if I love the music, if the music is nostalgic for me, uh, I think that they can be used to drive a plot and I think they can be a lot of fun. I'm, I'm a little bit picky. For me, the musicals I enjoy the most are the ones where... One, if the music furthers, furthers the story, that's a must for me as well. But if the lyrics are clever, I love a turn of phrase and I love wordplay. But I also like my music to go back to a chorus or something that I can pick up on uh, easily and sing on my own. The, the so, I, I, Yeah, I love hooks. So, you know, like... I love Lin-Manuel Miranda. Uh, I'm very excited about In the Heights, but that's much, almost more of like a a rock opera in the way that it just has these long musical numbers that kind of go all over the place. Mm -hmm. He doesn't often bring it back around to a rhyme or a a repeat or things like that, uh, which I appreciate, but that's not the one I'm going to go home singing and humming. Mm -hmm. Uh, Along those lines... I I like rock operas, but I'm picky about them. Uh, like I want that music to be catchy throughout. I don't want a bunch of people just singing stuff that is dissonant to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesus Christ Superstar is a great example where I really enjoyed being in it, but I will never listen to that soundtrack outside of being in the show, just because there's so many, so much of the music in it just isn't enjoyable. And then you to hit
3: me. King Herod's song, and everybody dances.
4: Well, you know, I auditioned for King Herod. I got <laughs> Simon the Zealot, but I auditioned for King Herod. So,
3: well, I I can see where you're what you're saying, um, like the, the hook and everything being important. I, I'm still not a fan of jukebox musicals. I can like numbers from them, I guess. So like like Moulin Rouge, the Broadway version of Moulin or I don't like the movie Moulin Rouge. Uh, so I doubt that I would very much like the Broadway production of Moulin Rouge. That's more about the story and the way it's told than anything else. The, I'm sure the performers are fantastic. I've heard the music from Moulin Rouge. It is a little, It gets a little much with all the mashups. Mm-hmm. But I will say that while most of it didn't really do much for me, the backstage romance song where they take uh, Lady Gaga's Bad Romance And they turn it into a very slow kind of tango thing. Uh, It just sounds dirty in the best way. Like just just (laughs) a dirty, grimy kind of like like passionate kind of song. And it's just rough and rough around the edges. And I'm like this, this I love. I love this moment. It then transitions into like an onstage number that gets really big and glitzy and stuff. And then I lose interest. But it's little things like that. It's kind of like even in the original uh, Moulin Rouge, the film version, the Tango of Roxanne, that one, that number, I'm like, that was one that I really liked. And then the rest of it, I wasn't too. um, It just didn't do anything for me. So, I I mean, it all depends.
4: I I like I did like the the elephant love song medley in the movie. I feel like in the stage version, they add too much to it. It goes on too long. And I say this as a member of a band who thrives on how many songs can we squish together yeah. like
3: well I, I i will say that the medley it, it, i agree it goes too long but there are a couple of inclusions of songs in that medley that just made me smile the fact that uh um uh, they had the uh was it such great heights that song in there which i never expected mm-hmm. to ever hear in a musical was was yeah. a lot of fun but yeah, yeah i agree it's um you know it's i guess it's all a matter of taste obviously there's some people who absolutely love the melodrama They you know i know a lot of my friends are huge fans of rent it's a show i cannot stand i do not yeah, like
4: I don't, it i don't i do not like um, rent at all if you like
3: if you like catchy songs and wordplay though ariel i'll tell you what musical you need to listen to uh and it's a joke musical and it's gutenberg the musical and the I want to I want to
4: listen to that one I haven't the yet, the soundtrack you can list. find the
3: soundtrack online in different places I recommend that one because it's it's a meta joke about musicals the the plot being that there are mm-hmm. two would be musical producers who are pitching their show to the audience in the hopes that someone in the audience is a producer on Broadway and it's all about Johann Gutenberg the inventor of the printing press. And uh, but the songs are very clever, like there are lots of internal rhymes and fun turns of phrase and the tunes are very catchy. Um, uh, So it's it's funny that two characters who are so bad at what they do end up making a musical that on a technical level is incredibly good.
4: <laughs> yeah. Oh, that reminds me. I'm usually not a fan of musicals that are remakes of movies or television shows, with the exception of. Possibly Beetlejuice, which I didn't get to see because of the COVID and uh, Groundhog's Day. Which uh, just the music for that is brilliant. So if you haven't listened to that, you should
3: listen to I that. Mean, the music to Mean Girls is also pretty good. And I wanted to see that one, too. <laughs> Maybe enough. I'm stupid in love. Well, we have a mashup coming up <laughs> in just a moment. And it's going to be about a couple of things we chatted about earlier in the show, but not musicals. I mean, mine's not. I don't know about aerials. Uh, but we'll have to find out about that after we come back from this quick break.
0: Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public.
2: Hey, everyone, this is Molly and Matt, and we're the hosts of Grown Up Stuff, How to Adult, a podcast from Ruby Studio and iHeart Podcasts.
1: It's a show dedicated to helping you figure out the trickiest parts of adulting.
2: Like how to start planning for retirement, creating a healthy skincare routine, understanding when and how much to tip someone, and so much more.
1: Here's a clip from an upcoming episode featuring the weekly home checks, Keyshawn Lane, that you won't want to miss
2: catch new episodes of Grown Up Stuff How to Adult every other Tuesday on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Grown
1: up stuff.
4: All right, Jonathan, I was kind of surprised when you agreed to do this particular mashup, uh, which is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and 101 Dalmatians. And not Cruella because one, the movie's not out, and two, I don't I didn't see the point in her story, as I said earlier. So 101 Dalmatians. Yeah.
3: Um, sometimes the, the pitches you come up with are ones where I don't, um, I can't imagine an easy entry point into the mashup, uh, but I usually get there anyway. This time it, it hit me right away, uh, which probably means that I've written the okay. exact same thing that you've written. So who goes yeah. first?
4: Um, I'm going to go first this time. You went first last okay. time. All right. This is called, and I'm guessing we probably have one of the two same titles, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Puppies, a.k.a. 101 uh, My, I'm using the 1996 version of 101 Dalmatians. And content warning, because animal movies are disturbing to me. You, little ones might find this disturbing if you're listening around your kids at certain points it doesn't get super dark but a little if bit. your little ones are okay. listening
3: i apologize for the weed joke i made earlier
4: <laughs> you, you should have known by now but okay so one day a jingle writer falls in love with a woman at a park over their same choice of pet dalmatians that's enough to build a relationship on right Anywho, soon enough, the Dalmatians have puppies, 101 of them, in fact. One day at work, the woman's boss and furrier, I guess, Shredder, known for the way he shreds poor animals apart to create high fashion, finds out about the puppies, and after he has refused on his offer to buy them from the woman, he hires a goon, played by David Dostmalchian, to go steal the puppies so that he can do unspeakable, horrible things to him. Shredder, not David Dostmalchian. And nabs the dalmatian puppies and yes i only put it in there for the <laughs> name similarity and he gets four of them he can't get all 101 he's only one goon and he can only carry so many puppies and by the way if you were curious he got speedy rolly thunder and dipstick and he brings them to the chute at the back of shredder's factory where he's supposed to drop them off all the while he's repeating the plan to himself so that he doesn't forget it Unfortunately, he chooses the wrong factory chute and accidentally drops the puppies into a vat of chemicals. But fear not, good listeners, instead of the chemicals harming the puppies, it causes them to develop human-like speech and reasoning and incredible fighting prowess. And that's when the puppies see Shredder, and Shredder sees them. Speedy yells out, Cowabonga! as they jump into the fray to stop Shredder from harming them and freeing themselves. But Shredder calls on his army of foot soldiers, the Foot Clan, which is an army of one-legged ninja rabbits who made deals for their lives by sacrificing one foot each to Shredder's fur business. The puppies best the foot clan and Shredder and escape through a vent into the sewer. In the sewers, they find a sentient ferret, who has also had a chemical accident at Shredder's, who offers to train them in the ways of martial arts and self-control. And they had so much fun defeating Shredder that they knew they just couldn't return home, so they accept. They learn to sit, sick, and karate chop and adopt the aliases Bonatello. Michael Mangely, uh, Michael Mangelo. Mange? Michael Mange? Hello? Uh, it doesn't matter. Leonardo and Raphael. Uh, they have a madcap <laughs> adventure.
3: <laughs> Sorry, go ahead.
4: They have madcap adventures in space, in the city, <laughs> and even in 17th century Japan, until one day they realize they miss belly rubs and decide to return home to their owners and their many brothers and sisters. Thankfully, their family is overjoyed at them returning. They've been searching for them this whole time, so it's a happy reunion, and the next day the four begin trade to one day take down Shredder once and for all.
3: The end. Or is I it I like it. I like it. <laughs> Mine is very, very different. <laughs> okay. okay, so welcome to Pre-Teen Mutant Rough Rough Ruffians. Here we go. Yay! Pongo and Purdy have a problem. The two Dalmatians have their had their litter of 15 puppies dognapped by the wicked Cruella DeVille. Alright, so my story plays out exactly as it does in the classic 101 Dalmatians, but with a twist. During the escape from the Badons, when Cruella is chasing down the moving van containing Pondo, Purdy, their 15 kids, plus another 84 puppies, four little puppies accidentally fall from the moving truck as it enters London. Cruella has attempted to run the van off the road, but collides with a lorry, carrying containers of glowing green goo. Ruella is hit by a good amount of goo, but most of it hits the street, soaking the four poor puppies. They get swept down a storm drain, but land safely, whereupon they discover a wise and talkative rat with a somewhat problematic accent. The rat introduces himself as Splinter. Splinter takes the four puppies into his care, feeding them and teaching them all he can but these four came from a group of 84 puppies that Cruella had previously purloined. They are not the actual puppies of Pondo, Pongo and Purdy, just to make that clear. Uh, they have no real names or home, so Splinter decides to name them. One of the puppies, a great lover of parks and people, he names Sirat. The second, a lover of pop art and comic books, he names <laughs> Liechtenstein. The third puppy, who had one ear stuck up and one that flopped over, he names Van Gogh the fourth and messiest puppy he names Pollock. The green goo changes the <laughs> puppies, making them more anthropomorphic. They take on almost human characteristics. He also teaches the puppies how to not only defend themselves, but he instills within them a desire to help others. And so the four puppies learn how to work together and develop a particularly rugged street-fighting technique. Collectively, they are known as the preteen mutant rough, ruff, ruff, ruff ruffians, and their record is spotty at best. Flash forward ha. a couple of years, and now they're the teenage mutant rough ref- you get the idea. The four friends have become protectors in London, helping those who are in trouble, but always from the shadows so as not to cause a scene, and there's a new scourge in the city. Or is it that new after all? A masked villain has been wreaking havoc, vandalizing shops on Oxford Street, and covering London in spots but the four friends recognize their old nemesis, even through the mask. Sure, now she calls herself Shredderella DeVille, but it's hardly a good supervillain name. I mean, the song about her is still a big hit on the radio. Shredderella has built up her own gang, known as the Foot Clan, so-called because they, are, they wear extremely stylish polka-dotted socks. Fuzzy ones. But mm-hmm. Shredderella wants her revenge, and moreover wants to move into real fur socks. Our teenage mutant Ruff Ruff Ruffians learn that Shredderella plans to raid the Dalmatian Plantation, the home where the other 95 puppies live. The unsuspecting family of Roger and Anita are none the wiser, and it's up to our heroes to save the day. They must make their way out of London in secrecy, and along the way they happen to come across an odd vigilante from Wales, Casey Jones. He favors a cricket bat as a weapon of choice and after an understandable moment of crisis as he begins to process the fact that four anthropomorphic talking Dalmatians are chatting with him, joins forces with our heroes. Together, they manage to take out many of the Foot Clan's ground forces near the Dalmatian plantation before anyone is the wiser, but Pollock gets a bit too rambunctious in one scuffle, and soon the alarm is raised. What follows is an epic fight between our heroes and villains with Shredderella shrieking the entire time. The family wakes up with tons of dogs, and there's just a big, loud mess. But in the end, Shredderella is defeated, restrained, and left for the authorities to claim. She faces enormous amounts of jail time and fines for defacing various properties in London, where such things are held as truly serious offenses. As for Surat, Lichtenstein, Van Gogh, and Pollock? As they prepare to leave, they see their former friends, now grown dogs, and there's a sweet reunion, but as Roger and Anita emerge from their home, the heroes make their goodbyes and slip off into the night before they are seen. While the parting is sad, they all promise to communicate through the twilight bark, which I had to look up because I couldn't remember if that was from 101 Dalmatians or if it was actually from Lady and the Tramp, but it was the Dalmatian one. The end.
4: (laughs) I like it. I like the Twilight Bark. I had, I had forgotten.
3: Yeah, I, I, I wrote that as a joke, but it's legit. I was like, wait, was Twilight Bark and Lady of the Tramp or with? Because I haven't seen either movie in a very long time.
4: Well, well done on you for having the puppies leave Roger and Anita and not having me be too stressed out about it. So.
3: Oh, yeah. You know, and also well like, done. you know, for those of you who are real art fans, I mean, Van Gogh is a giveaway. And Pollock is probably a giveaway. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I uh, Surratt, also a giveaway, if you happen to know pointillism. Um, yeah. I'll be curious if people know who Lichtenstein is. But yeah, uh, I made I decided I had to update the artist names.
4: Yes, I loved it. I loved it. Well, uh, if you have your own version of Ninja Turtles meets 101 Dalmatians, you should write us and let us know. How can they do that? Well,
3: you can send us a good old-fashioned email. The way to do that is to send it to lnc at iheartmedia.com. Or you can let us know on Twitter where we are lnc underscore podcast or on Facebook or Instagram. We're Large Nerdron Collider at both of those places. And to go to our website, you can see all of our show notes. You can leave us messages there as well if you want to. That is largenerdroncollider.com. We always have show notes for every episode. So that way you can actually go and read the articles we referenced like that Broadway article. We only scratched the surface of what that article covered. It's it's incredibly thorough. um, And it really gives you a deep appreciation of how complicated and involved Broadway productions and theatrical productions in general really are.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Um, And you know, Please do write us. We really love hearing from you. We like continuing that conversation and tell your friends about us and make sure that they subscribe, just like I'm sure you have. Uh, and until next time, I'm Ariel Caston.
3: And I'm Jonathan Big Dog Run Strickland. Woof woof. Bow wow wow. Yippee yo. Yippee a.
4: The Large Nerdron Collider is a production of iHeartRadio and was created by Ariel Kasten. Jonathan Strickland is the executive producer. The show is produced, edited, and published by Tari Harrison. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
0: Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public. The list of fears is endless.